welcome to Regency Rumors, a Bridgerton podcast. I'm Kayla. And I'm Jordan. This is the first episode of our recap podcast for the Netflix series Bridgerton. It's based on a series of books written by Julia Quinn, starting with The Duke and I. Bridgerton is the first made-for-Netflix series produced by Shonda Rhimes, the creator of Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, and Scandal. Today, we're going to be going over the first episode of Bridgerton, which is very different in style to Rhimes' previous shows. It's the first period piece that she's done. But it's no less filled with drama, that's for sure. And spoiler alert, we really liked it. So a little bit more of who we are and why we've decided to do the podcast. We are a British-American couple based in the UK. We met at university studying creative writing. Kayla is currently studying for a PhD in Welsh history, and I'm a content writer. Kayla has been a long-time Austin fan, and I've uh, been roped into this podcast. Well, it's not exactly Star Trek. It isn't. But whilst I'm more a sci-fi and fantasy fan, I think there can be a common misconception that period dramas are more for women, and I definitely disagree. I think it's going to be fun unpacking this series based on our different backgrounds and perspectives. Kayla, who knows a little bit more about this genre, and me coming in as a bit of a newbie. So what we'll be discussing through the podcast. As writers and avid readers, we're really interested in the story element of Bridgerton. So we're going to be talking about plots and characterization, setting. Bridgerton has a beautiful setting um, throughout the show and different characters with loads of drama. So we're going to be talking about these different elements as writers and readers. We're also going to be talking about the historical elements of Bridgerton, the Regency era, society rankings, customs of the time, um, kind of looking at how Bridgerton is based in the Regency period. Finally, before we get started, I just want to say that we are in no way experts on the Regency period or costuming or television. We're just fans like you. It's really obvious that Bridgerton is more of a fantasy version of the Regency period than anything set in reality. So we're enjoying and commenting on it for what it is. We will be referring to some historical events or customs in the Regency period, learning about a lot of these elements in Bridgerton that were based in reality. And we're excited you're going to be learning alongside us. If you'd like to discuss aspects of the podcast or Bridgerton in general, feel free to join our Facebook group. Go to www.facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors to join the group. So that's rumors with a U because that is the correct way to spell it. Oh dear. This podcast is a part of my blog, A Regency Girl. For more posts on period drama, history, and travel, go to www.aregencygirl.com. So now on to the recap of Bridgerton Season 1, Episode 1, Diamond of the First Water. In the opening scene, we've we open to a, a wide shot of Regency London. But if I'm remembering correctly, this is actually Bath. Yeah, I think most of this was shot in Bath, to be honest. You can kind of tell that that kind of iconic crescent scene. You know, we've seen that in Persuasion. I think there's a couple other Regency era stuff that, that Bath's been in. You know, it's a very Regency town. You really can't find anything else like it. But for this, it's London. It's definitely an iconic thing to, to see for somebody who's a Regency 
lover because they do utilize it. And, you know, Jane Austen lived in Bath for a time, and so they've got the Jane Austen Center there. And there's other Regency writers as well that that write stories in Bath. Bath was, you know, somewhere people came to, to partake in the waters, and so it was a very popular destination for people to go at the time. And so that's why it's kind of been used today, because you know, these, these Georgian buildings are still there. These Regency style apartments that we really don't see anywhere else are still there. So there's not a lot of options in in terms of this time period, if you want to film a, you know, a busy setting, as opposed to, you know, that there are country cottages that they film and stuff. Well, I mean, you don't have to build the set, right? It's right there. Yeah. It still looks like that today. You just have to get rid of the, the modern vehicles. So, okay. So we've opened up to a wide shot of Regency London, and it's a bustling street, um, lots of people around. And then the familiar voice of Julie Andrews begins narrating. We do eventually, or rather quickly, find out that this is the voice of Lady Whistledown, and that name will become very important to you over the, the rest of this season. And she informs us that the story starts in Grosvenor Square in 1813. This is the start of the social season, and we, we begin with the Featherington family, consists of three eligible daughters and one tactless mother, as Whistledown calls her. We then turn to the Bridgerton family, the eponymous family of the the show. They have four handsome sons and four beautiful daughters, and they're all unmarried. They're being raised by their widowed Viscountess mother, uh, Lady Violet. We see these collections of shots where the two families are preparing for an event. Uh, They live across the street from one another, and so they can see each other out of their windows. And we see that two women have a mountain to climb. They're trying to to get their eligible eldest children paired off and married, and it's, you know, the job of mothers in this time period. Within the first three minutes, we get to see one of the main focuses of the show, the head of the Bridgerton family, the Viscount Bridgerton, also known as Anthony. The Viscount is late for the event because he is, in fact, shagging someone in front of a tree. (laughs) The family arrives at the event, which we find out is the very beginning of the social season, it's a presentation of the eligible young women, the debutantes, to Queen Charlotte. So the three Featherington girls unfortunately make a rather bad impression on the Queen, um, and they do not gain her favour, whilst the eldest Bridgerton daughter, Daphne, is called Flawless. This cuts to the intro of the series, which is a tree that grows um, different aspects of the story, such as a piano, dance cards, and embracing couples. What we can surmise from the first 10 minutes of the episode is that these are two very wealthy, fashionable, and well-connected families. So within your first 10 minutes, what's your overall impression so far? Um, I think it was definitely interesting because it was very bright, vibrant. Um, but it reminded me of um, the recent production of Emma, more so than most other period dramas that we've watched. Um, it's not as gloomy. It's you know it's vibrant and it's kind of it's hopeful in a way. I know that most uh, romance and period drama is going to be hopeful, but you know I think this just kind of really embodies that with its colours and symbols. I'll have to agree. Um, 
right from the onset, we can really tell there's there's not really anything in this that says, you know, this is going to be extremely period correct. You know, we're going to see horse poop in the streets and people throwing waste buckets over and, and those sorts of things. This is very much a dream of what, you know, I, I think a lot of people get into Jane Austen for. This is kind of a visual dream of what people wish the Regency period was actually like, and it's not the way that people vision it to be but if it were this would be it this would it would be these vibrant colors people running around people in carriages calling out to one another and so in that way I think it's really beautiful now I know and I've heard of people kind of poo-pooing the the costumes and not being historically correct and we'll get get to that later but I think visually this is just beautiful and it's captivating to the eye so the other thing that you can kind of notice in this right from the onset is that it's a very diverse cast which I think is great I think it's very neat to see that we have people of color in all different roles right up to the to the queen and living within high society and I I think it's something that we've not really seen in the regency period before and I'm loving it yeah definitely I know that there are some researchers who've mentioned that the truth of British history is much more varied than we were kind of taught today. Um, Unfortunately, it's not something I know a lot about. It's something that I do want to kind of look into more. So yeah, I mean, just in terms of bringing this into the modern era, I think they've done a pretty good job with that. So the first kind of thing I want to kind of touch on is the ranks and the titles, Um, because we're going to be talking a lot about ranks and titles throughout the show, right? Um, And the two the two main families here, the Bridgertons and the Featheringtons, they're headed by different ranks. So the Bridgerton family have a Viscount as the head, and the Featheringtons have a Baron. So that means that the Bridgertons are higher in the peerage, and the peerage is the list of nobility. So the peerage in the United Kingdom from the Union in 1801 onwards, which is 12 years before the start of this show, um, there are five ranks that we kind of care about. In ascending order, we start with barons, then we get viscounts, then we have earls, then marquesses, and then we end with dukes. Dukes are right at the top, underneath um, some kind of ranks that we don't really have here in Britain. Um, we do elsewhere in the on the continent. Um, but above that, you then have princes, kings, and emperors. Now, obviously, with all of these ranks, there is often a female version of the title. Um, just for brevity, I'm just saying the, the male version here. But the, I think the really kind of interesting thing here is that we've got two families quite low down in the peerage, the Baron and the Viscount, and they are, you know, they're just as important in some ways as these families of earls, marquesses, and dukes. Um, just you know, they are nobility, so they're part of high society, and so we do care about what they're doing. You know, they've they've got that level of respect just because they're in the peerage. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the romance and relationships that we mentioned, marrying upwards is always the goal. You know, if if you're from a family of, of a baron, you can marry into, you know, a viscount or an earl's family. That's perfectly fine but if you're a member of an earl's family you wouldn't really want to marry into a viscount's 
are a baron's family, so you don't really want to move down. It's probably going to be denied by whoever's the head of your family if you tried to do that. But yeah, so yeah, very brief overview of the ranks and titles there. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this um, as things come up. I do think it's interesting that these characters are interacting in kind of a royal court. Uh, we see that a lot in kind of Tudor productions. You know, uh, the main characters are um, in and out of an Eliz Elizabethan court, or we're watching King Henry VIII make so many mistakes with his wives. But really, uh, with a Regency period drama like this, you don't really see that. You know, especially not in any of Austen's works, and then, you know, the period dramas that have been done about them, none of those characters kind of interact at that high of a level. So it's really interesting to kind of see this and to see the pressure that a lot of these characters feel when they're around the queen and, you know, what they feel they must do and how they feel they must act in her presence. So I mm. find that quite entertaining. I think it's um, really fun to watch. I think it, that's another thing to kind of mention here is obviously this is Regency era and I know a lot of listeners are probably going to already know what Regency is as a genre, right? But the Regency period was a time in British history when there wasn't a, a monarch ruling. There was a monarch, King George the Third, the Third, <laughs> but he had disabilities and mental illnesses that prevented him from ruling correctly, and he accepted a regent to kind of take care of the throne, which was actually his son, who eventually went on to become George, uh, King George the Fourth, but. The Regency period means that there is no true kind of ruler, in a sense. So the fact that we see the Queen's court um, is actually quite unusual, just because it's kind of, well, you know, the Queen isn't ruling, but she's still interacting in society. Just because it's the Regency period doesn't mean that they just disappeared for 13 years, or however long it was. Um, they are still there, and we still get to kind of see them doing what they, what they do. Absolutely. So we see that this paper is being passed out in the street by runners, and there's kind of a flurry of these papers going throughout the houses in London, and we find out that the narrator that we've been listening to, the beloved Julie Andrews, she is this pseudonym for a uh, gossip columnist who distributes news around London uh, through her paper called Lady Whistledown's Society Paper. And we can see throughout the household that the different households in the area, that this paper is very influential to the families. They want to know what's being written about them, which, why wouldn't you? So we can see kind of from the beginning that Daphne's made an impression on Lady Whistledown. She's called The Diamond of the First Water, which is the title of the first episode. So back at the Featheringtons, however, the three daughters, Penelope, Prudence, and Philippa, they're getting far less of a, uh, a positive review. How do we feel about having this kind of Lady Whistledown character that talks throughout the story? I mean, you know how I am. I'm, I'm normally not somebody that likes a narrator mm -hmm. uh, telling me every part of the story, but if it's Julie Andrews, I will listen. So it's pretty funny. I didn't know it was Julie Andrews myself until IMDb told me. So I know that's my first sin. But, you know, as a, as a story tool, the, the narrator's perfect because they, they've used it cleverly. The narrator doesn't come along and just tell you boring things that we should be seeing on screen. They use Whistledown as a very 
timely intervention tool. And we'll see this time and again throughout uh, the episodes. But if the action starts to slow down, or if the drama kind of settles a little bit, or there's going to be a long time period between one event happening and someone else finding out, and therefore the drama and conflict coming up, you know, Lady Whistledown just so happens to stir things up by releasing another paper, another gossip column. So as a tool, it's really, really useful because it not only tells the audience things that we might need to know, tells us specifically who's involved in what scandal and that kind of thing, but it also, it's it's speeding up the action. I don't think this story would have been able to happen in the way it did without that character. And I think it's a very binding thing for somewhere like London, which is normally very chaotic. It's, you know, London is so big in these kinds of stories that there's all kinds of people that are coming in and out and interacting. And you might hear in a Regency story of a couple of different families that are prominent. Um, but something like this paper is very binding for a community like this, um, which I think is, is really neat and interesting. Now, it, is it historically accurate? No, because, you know, somewhere like London, it's, it would be hard to have that much of a binding effect on something. But I think a, a paper like this is really clever to kind of show these different families, show the drama that they're having, and, and how that is interacting with this, you know, opening season of these these women coming out into society. So soon after this, we find out that the Featheringtons are going to be helping our cousin, Marina Thompson, who was raised in the country on a farm to come and stay with them for the time being. They they talk uh, as a family and they believe that she's going to be homely and kind of average, um, but it is very quickly revealed that, he, that she is far prettier than the three Featherington sisters put together. Here we kind of we see a little bit more of the Featheringtons um, compared to the Bridgertons. So, what kind of opinions or thoughts do you have about the Featherington family? I definitely think it's a little bit of like an ugly stepsister type thing. Like I hate saying that, but these three daughters are obviously they're they're meant to not be the most beautiful women on the market, right? Like we're meant to think you know these girls are not going to capture the the eyes of the most eligible bachelors in London. But what we do find is one of the daughters, Penelope, she has quite a sweet spirit and a lovely personality. And that's when we're kind of first introduced to her. And she's the only person to say when this new cousin comes in the room, oh, she's beautiful. I remember her saying something like that. And she's the only person to kind of really acknowledge her I think as a as a person compared to the rest of the cast and especially not uh, compared to her mother Portia who I think is supposed to be a little bit of a Miss Bennett type from Pride and Prejudice you know she's this mom that has three daughters she's tasked with getting them married off and and so you know she's kind of got a bit of a hill to climb mm -hmm. uh, this social season because she has three eligible daughters, not just one uh, like the Bridgertons have that's ready and out in society. She's got all three, and then on top of this, she has this you know cousin coming in that happens to be more beautiful than her own daughters. And doesn't one of the side characters? Um, I don't think I caught her name throughout the show. Um, she remarks to Lady Featherington, 
oh, it's going to be even more difficult now that you've got four eligible young ladies to guide through the season. So it's not only is it kind of a sting that a country bumpkin cousin is prettier than her own daughters, but now she has the added task of um, chaperoning her through society. And like we kind of mentioned earlier, that is literally the the full-time occupation of these mothers. That's their job, is basically marry off their daughters, as, as medieval as that sounds. Well, in a lot of ways, and especially for this family, not that, you know, I'm trying to bring any spoilers just yet, but, you know, the, these daughters, in a way, they are a financial responsibility. And so um, there, there is kind of a monetary reason behind doing these things. You get these, these daughters married off, you, you don't have to financially care for them anymore. Um, and that does sound a bit medieval. You know, you don't want to necessarily have to think of your daughters in that way, but, but that's kind of absolutely another way to look at it, as well as the connections that your family is going to make. But, you know, one of those things, especially if you have four or five daughters, you know, in the case of something like Pride and Prejudice, it was very important for them to find these women uh, husbands because there was going to be another man that was going to take over the estate. So who was going to take care of them? It, you know, everything to do with these women's lives were all connected with the fact that they needed to find husbands because if they didn't, who was going to take care of them? So this whole pillar of society is all built up on the fact that these these women don't really have any independence. It has to be done by who, what man they're going to be passed to. So, you know, as much as I think some of characters like Portia Featherington, you know, she, she can come off as a bit bitchy, controlling, manipulative. There's also this aspect of like, you know, clenching her fists, probably scared. I need to find my daughter's a, a secure future. And so in that way, you, you feel for mothers like this, even though it doesn't, their actions, it doesn't look like that's what they're doing by being manipulative. You know, there is an element of desperation in their actions. And I think that's a really kind of interesting thing to look at. Um, and and more on that later. Yes, basically. a lot more of that later. But uh, just before we move on, I want to briefly mention accents here. Because the actress for Penelope Featherington, Nicola, is that Coughlin? Coughlin, Coughlin, maybe? I think it's Coughlin. Yeah. An Irish actress um, did fantastically well with the British accent. You would not kind of think it from watching uh, Derry Girls, right? Yes, I think she's so adorable in that series. I mean, she's, she's a fantastic actor. But you know, just in terms of the difference of of accent, I think that was that was kind of a a shock to the system because I didn't expect it. However, I think another one um, that's interesting is uh, Ruby Barker, the actor for the cousin, Marina Thompson. Apparently, she's Glaswegian, but moved to York for school sometime around her GCSEs in her teens. So her accent is actually quite a neutral one um, in in interviews and things, but in the show. It doesn't. It doesn't strike me too much as as particularly country or even northern, which is a very um, particular stereotype that kind of frustrates me. You know, Downton Abbey, for example, you've got the the southern British accent that's uh, upper class, and then you've got the northern accent, which is lower class. And in this, they don't quite do that. She There's do- not as much of a divide, you'd say, in these accents. Well, no, what I mean is that they didn't tell 
whoever it was to put on a, a Yorkshire accent just to then make sure that she's from the country and everybody knows that. So she doesn't have a, a particularly, um, you know, received pronunciation accent, but at the same time, it, it wasn't too northern either. So it was quite neutral. I liked that. But I do remember watching it that I thought it was a bit of a kind of a Cockney accent, like a, you know, East London style and like a hint of it anyway. So it's just a curious thing, but it, I thought it was a, a good thing that they didn't go full on stereotype with, you know, a farmer type accent for this cousin. So soon after this, we're introduced to the Duke of Hastings, Simon, uh, riding in on a horse to the house. Um, his mother figure, Lady Danbury, is waiting for him, and she's planning a ball, and as an eligible bachelor, she wants him there. So, this is the first time that we see the Duke of Hastings, and what's your opinion on him? Well, the only note I have is how hot he is. <laughs> Pretty much the only, uh, the only note I really have to say about this section. I will say, you know, when we were originally watching it, I kind of turned to you and I said, you know... I could see him on the cover of, you know, one of these Regency erotica yes. novels. And mm. I wonder if, if that's the effect that they were trying to go for. We want somebody that, you know, 100% could be put on one of these novels. And I could see it, him kind of swashbuckling, you know, with his top open and his chest out. And I, I'm here for it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> but, okay, it's a chicken and egg situation. Did did he go and look at the covers of some Regency era erotica to to find the bearing that he needed to stand in for I the just show think he is he you just, just is. you think he is he okay just fine. is good looking fine <laughs> but to to briefly go back to the ranks and titles that we mentioned earlier i think it's very interesting that we jump past earl and marcus and go straight to the duke is it maybe for the audience's sake um it's a netflix show it's an american production company are they thinking that perhaps the audience is is mainly going to be um, American or unfamiliar with the peerage in general? Um, Wait, what do you mean? Okay, so... Yes, help the American here. Okay, like, let's help the American. So we've got, you know, down on, on the bottom end of things, we've got the Featheringtons and we've got the Bridgertons, who, as we mentioned, are Baron Viscount, Okay right at the lower end of nobility but then we've got the duke who is literally at the top end of nobility and unless you're royalty you can't go further so i mean you know they're all kind of royalty in some ways anyway but you know we've skipped out the middle two ranks of the nobility um earls and marcuses is that just because hardly anybody knows what a marcus is and is it because earl I, I don't know, like, why Why not those ranks? Why is it a duke? Well, I, I think that's less to do with the show and more to do with the book. So the books uh, were a series, and they weren't called Bridgerton. The first book was called The Duke and I. So um, it, it's not really about the show. The, the writer of the book, um, she is American. And so I, you know, and I've read the book. I think my personal take on it is that she wrote it that way because, I mean, she wanted to show he was the most desirable of desirable of desirable, right? Like, mm -hmm. she wanted to, to show that, like, this guy was not just, like, desirable in this realm. Like, he was it. He was the it guy of the its, if that means anything. So I, I think that 
you know, that was very intentional on Julia Quinn to um, have him be not just nobility, but right there at the top. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I obviously haven't read the book. Um, didn't even think about it. So, yeah, good point. Um, but I do also think that for audience's sake, to have a duke instead of a Marcus or an Earl, I don't know. I think it's just more impressive, really, isn't it? Yes. We now see Viscount Bridgerton. He is uh, laying around with a, a lever. She happens to be an opera singer, and we can tell that he has kind of put her up in a house across town. But we're going to talk about that a bit later. Before we before we move on, a very quick interjection. You you skipped over an important part of the notes that I that I import that I put in there, and you called him Viscount Bridgerton. The correct address is the Viscount oh, Bridgerton. For sakes. Yeah. Well, actually, to be very formal about it, it would be the Right Honourable Viscount. The Right Honourable the Viscount Bridgerton. Um, I'm not saying that every single time. You don't say. have to say that every time. If you were writing to him, you would. Um, no, but because it's either the Lord Bridgerton, or like Lord Lord Bridgerton, or the Viscount Bridgerton. Why? Because he's not the only Viscount. So it's like, it's not Viscount. I don't know. It, it just, it makes sense in my head. No, that, that makes sense to me as well, I suppose. I'm... Just an uneducated American, so fine. It, well, the thing is, it's not... Not many people are going to get that correct these days. But it's just one of those little things where it is the Viscount. So, so. we're going to move on to the ball. And everybody in high society is there. We've got music from Ariana Grande's Thank You Next playing in an orchestral manner. And I also am here for that. I love that throughout the series. We're going to go into that a bit later. But I, I really like this aspect of having this type of music playing for something like this. And so like Cinderella ascending from the stairs at the ball with her glass slipper, all eyes are on Daphne. And, and right away, you know, she gets into the ballroom and a man approaches her to take her on the dance floor. But very swiftly, her brother Anthony comes up and brushes the guy aside for having gambling debts uh, in a very cringy moment, you know, ad addresses what he knows about the guy and kind of shoos him away from his sister. So this is the first time that we really see that Daphne's not really in charge of her future. It's her, her brother, Anthony, who is in charge of her future. And this is kind of the reality of uh, men being in charge of finding the women in their lives good matches and kind of interceding from them being able to make decisions on their own. You know, him learning of this information, of this guy having having these gambling debts, it also shows you that these, these women, there's a lot of information that they're not given. You know, the men, you know, when they're in these back rooms smoking and drinking um, and that sort of thing, they know so much about each other that they, they don't share with with women. And so... In a lot of ways, how could she know that he had this about him or that about him or say he went to brothels or say he'd lost a lot of money? These women, unfortunately, it seems as if they're not hearing things the way the men are hearing. And so, you know, they don't really even have access to this information. So even in that way, 
the men are controlling these women's future because they're the gatekeepers of, of their own information. So that it, it is a bit disheartening. And it, you know, for me, I'm sitting there watching and thinking, you know, clenching my fist like, ah, it's so annoying for Daphne that, you know, she can't find this all out for herself. But then in another way, I'm like, well, her brother does know this information. So like if my brother knew that kind of information, I'd want him to tell me that. Right. So, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, really. I think it's got a couple of different purposes, right? Like we we do see this, you know, Anthony subplot come to fruition later as well, right? But it's also showing you Daphne's naivety um, at the beginning of the, the series. And, you know, minor spoilers, I guess, but, you know, not really. But the characters do all grow throughout the show. And it's really good that they do. This is a really good way of kind of actually seeing that she's naive but it's not it's not naive in like just such a childish way that she can't grow up or anything like that it's that literally she's naive about the world because she doesn't she hasn't been in the world in this real world that the the men hide away from the women um and i think the aspect of this that runs throughout the show um matches modern sensibilities quite well without it being over the top and then anti-genre um, because obviously Regency era fiction needs to be kind of correct. That's part of the genre conventions. It's why it's read and, and enjoyed so much. But yeah, we don't we don't really go against the genre too much, from my opinion. Maybe you feel differently. No, I, I just wanted to add another note that I do think that um, another reason why I like Lady Whistledown is because it's in some ways a small way for the women to take back the power in terms of this information, right? Like she's hearing these different things and then distributing it among society. So women are picking up these pages and they're hearing so-and-so had an affair or, you know, had a gambling debt problem or whatever, um, where maybe previously women wouldn't have heard that information. It would have been kept private by the men. So it's another way that kind of women are able to take back some power in this series, which I like. However, Whistledown kind of doesn't pull her punches and it isn't just the men's secrets that she lets out. It's everybody's secrets. Oh, totally. So it's more of a democratizing thing. Everybody is put on the same playing field. But I guess my point is is that I like that it's a woman publishing these things. We presume. We presume. For, for now. But we'll get into theories of, yeah. of who we think Lady Whistledown is uh, later, probably. So in walks the Duke. And just like Daphne, all eyes are on him. He's immediately bombarded by the Featherington women. It doesn't really go well. Seems like most of the things that these poor Featherington women come up against don't really go well uh, this first episode. Yeah. Um, to be fair, that's not necessarily their fault. Um, in this case, the Duke does not like the attention of any of these uh, debutantes and their mothers. But Daphne and the Dukes um, meet cute is anything but pleasant as they literally run into each other. She's trying to avoid a creepy suitor and he believes that she's trying to flirt with him and both begin their acquaintance, acquaintanceship not impressed with one another. So, you know, going back to kind of awesome plot points, this is a similar trope of characters not liking each other when they first meet. So, you know, this is very classic type of Elizabeth and Darcy meeting for the first time on a dance floor he refuses to dance with anybody. She believes him to be prideful. And so, you know, I, I think there's something kind of familiar with this, but also kind of 
attractive. You know, I don't really know. I'm sure there's a science behind why this is so popular, what, you know, why, why this is used so often. But it is, for some reason, it is really powerful to an audience. It captures me right away. I think th these kinds of things, because I'm like, ooh, they don't like each other. You know, what's going to happen to make them hopefully eventually like each other? And so it grabs you in in the same way I think like a, a murder at the beginning of a murder mystery grabs you in. You know, a very immediately something has happened to make these two characters not like each other and have differing opinions about each other. And something about it is super attractive. And I just want to know more. See, it's interesting that you'd say that because to me, I I don't I don't read romance enough to find the enjoyment in oh how are they actually going because like we know that they're going to get together we kind of you go oh there's the main male character there's the main female character in in, in a normal romance I'm talking about like they're going to get together right so then it's like well all of the mystique and mystery is kind of gone um, I guess the pleasure is in finding out exactly how they get to that point. I, without kind of going into it just yet, I really like what this show did to that trope and that kind of genre convention throughout the whole series. So we're going to right after the ball now. We think it's the day after, maybe we're presuming. So the Featheringtons and the Bridgertons are waiting for callers to arrive to meet their eligible daughters. Poor girls. Daphne is seeing men under the watchful eye of her brother, Anthony, yet again. Uh, while the Featheringtons are only receiving callers to visit the beautiful cousin Marina Thompson. So the only shooter, shooter, the only suitor that shows up for Daphne is this creepy Lord Bearbrook again, who she was trying to avoid at the ball, and that's why she ran into the Duke. So Daphne and Anthony have a conversation about her being a woman and how she doesn't have enough free will and how the fact that he has been blocking her from a lot of these guys has made her almost ineligible that's what lady whistledown calls her because she has well through her brother she has refused so many guys at this point that they're almost intimidated to show up at the house why would they you know her brother has such high standards for her that you know who who would show up they're they're too intimidated so I first wanted to talk about kind of this Marina character um, because it was, wasn't in the book and some people are saying it doesn't really add very much to the plot. I, I've been hearing that in some of my Regency groups that I'm mm. in. Um, but I think it's a really interesting storyline throughout the show. I think we, we don't kind of see that aspect of anything of anything that isn't high society and, you know, unless we really have her. I mean, we do, we do kind of see that the servants and things are kind of milling about, but that's kind of normal. I think in a period drama, you kind of see that and it's kind of brushed, brushed over, but she's kind of our example of someone who has to step into this awkward role of being in high society, but not really being a part of it. And, you know, feeling awkward around people that have that level, level of status and feeling uncomfortable around them. And so I, I think that's a really powerful thing to put in a storyline like this. I, I think it does mm -hmm. add something to it because otherwise I do I do feel like we would just be seeing people going to balls over and over again. And, you know, as, as interesting as 
obviously uh, the Duke and Daphne are, you know, this, this storyline shows us the realities of, you know, people who are less fortunate and how hard it is for them to feel accepted and to fit in. So there's kind of something that we could talk about later, but maybe maybe I'll bring it up now. But I think Marina is a good example of kind of a tool that the writers are using to not mirror, but kind of have a foil to the high society where Marina is supposed to be this, you know, it's it's real, you know. She's from outside of London. She's from outside of high society. She comes in and an outsider looking in goes, you're all being ridiculous. Um, and so she's supposed to kind of be the the everyday person um, in some ways. I would like to point out, though, that if the entire show had Anthony be this dense, I would not have enjoyed it. Um, and it is brilliant to see that the writers allowed the characters to grow throughout the season. So, After a bit of conspiring between Lady Danbury and Lady Bridgerton, uh, Violet, the, the widow of the former Viscount and the family's mother, and Lady Danbury being the mother figure of the Duke of Hastings. So the Duke is kind of enticed to go for dinner at the Bridgerton's house. The two women think that the match could be a good one. So the Duke and Daphne speak again mostly about how they're definitely not interested in each other. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of, it's apparent even at this early stage that there is a very large spark of attraction um, between these two characters. But I do think it's funny that the, the two mothers essentially are kind of going, oh yes, yes, get together, get together. Um, but they don't necessarily see the tension between the Duke and Daphne because of uh, of how they met. It may also be that, you know, I I love Violet in, in this. Um, she's so much wiser than her son and all of her children, really. But I think oftentimes mothers can see things that we can't. Mm. I know my mom has definitely seen things in my life that I can't see. And so mm. I think that's a particular talent of mothers. And so even if there is tension between the two of these, I think she sees something that could spark between them and mm. that could really be a future. And to go back to your earlier point, she's also seeing the Duke as the perfect catch for her daughter. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, like, one, one like, look know, at him. Cynically, and... I mean, a little bit. There, there is a bit of calculation there involved. I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah. But, Daphne, um... Daphne calls the Duke a rake. So her mother also says reformed rakes make the very best of husbands. And I, I would like to kind of just point out that I wrote saucy in the notes <laughs> because to me that just kind of speaks of her mother being like, oh, they make the very best of husbands. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, he'll do. He'll do well in the bedroom. I mean, maybe that's what she meant. I took it as another way. I took it as kind of like he's, you know, sown his wild oats or whatever oh he's got it out of his system he's got it out of his system and now he's not you'll get the best of both worlds so he will be good in bed um but he'll also be loyal because you know he's been through that phase and he's done with it you'd rather that than a man who's never had any of that and and then comes into the marriage and then is tempted here and there and everywhere. So <laughs> that's an interesting take. It I, is. I, an I'm, you know, I'm not saying that that's what I believe, but, but I am just saying that, you know, that's what she could be thinking. Oh, is like, mm. you know, a guy who's had this experience and got it out of the system. Like he, he will be a little bit of fun in the bed, but he's not going to be going here and there because he got it out in his, uh, you know, in what we would call our, our kind of college years or 
gap years or whatever. So well, uh, Anthony and the Duke met at uh, Oxford. Oxford. Yeah, yeah. So that that's you know, we we haven't really talked about that aspect, but obviously Anthony's not not down for this um, Daphne and Duke coupling at all because he's aware of the way the Duke behaved in college. They you know they talk about that a little bit um, in this first episode, and you can see his discomfort with it not only because he's his best friend and so he's like well this is weird i don't want my best friend and my sister dating which is totes relatable right now but i think um you know another aspect you know going back to talking about a lot of things that they say that women don't know you know they kind of allude to there was a bunch of things that the two of them did when they were in oxford that makes him in anthony's mind ineligible for his sister because he's like he's done some stuff you know what I mean and so I don't want that around my sister I'm fine doing it myself and with my friend but I don't want it around my sister and I think that's that's another interesting topic that we can rabbit hole we can go down another time but I do just think that's kind of an interesting aspect to to look at because yeah that's that's where Daphne gets this idea even though she doesn't know everything that went on, went on that's where she gets this idea that the duke is a rake and do we kind of know any, you know, I definitely see this phrase of a rake being very British and I see it as, yeah, kind of being from the Regency era, but I don't know very much about it, but I'm, I'm guessing a rake is someone who's been around, gone around, done some stuff, seen some stuff, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so rake is short for rake hell, analogous to hellraiser. A man who was habituated to immoral conduct, particularly womanizing. So, yeah, basically going around and, and kind of, sleeping around. Is that around. kind of like a libertine? I'm not sure. We'll have to look that up. So, often a rake was prodigal, um, wasting his usually inherited fortune on gambling, wine, women, and song, and incurring lavish debts in the process. Cad is a, a closely related term. Oh, and comparable comparable terms are libertine and debauchee. That, by the way, was from Wikipedia. So, um, top notch research, right there, babe. Don't don't at me. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think um, one of the other things we wanted to mention here is that we see the family. the The Duke actually makes a comment on this in in the episode as well. The whole family is together at a single table, um, including the youngest siblings. And he says, oh, this is quite novel to have everybody here. And, you know, they're quite ruly. The, you know, the kids are throwing food at each other and they're, you know, complaining and things. And Violet, Lady Bridgerton, says, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she does make a comment and says that it's basically, it's nice to have everybody, everybody together. And I agree. It's a really nice family dynamic. And we see these people as people they're not rigid characters they're not just like a single facade um but also it might be a bit mean of me but i think these moments where we see the youngest kids acting out like this are made all the better for how rare these moments are it doesn't happen again and again which i think is really good that might be be me just being a bit grumpy about um yeah i'm i'm particularly fond of these kinds of aspects um i think we've been seeing them more and more in period dramas and you know as much as this 100 percent is almost fantastical this whole show is more of a dream than anything but um you know in 
in kind of the last few years, period dramas have definitely brought kind of this family aspect and this personal aspect of what it's like living in the home. You know, movies like Little Women, you very much feel like you could just be sitting in their living room. Whereas I think movies before um, recent times, it's it's been very much, oh, we sit straight on, on the settee and, you know, we drink our tea with our, our pinky up and the, those sorts of things. And clearly these people were real people who ran around chasing their kids who had to clean up stuff who you know spilled food on their their clothing and had stuff in their teeth and you know not to say that we need to see all of that but seeing some of that I think helps people you know drop the illusion that that people in period dramas were were perfect or genteel all the time and um, that's really bad especially with the Victorians but people do it with the uh, Regis here as well so I, I just think these kind of moments where you see kids running around and you know food being thrown or whatever like I quite like them because they make people human and the really interesting thing is you know we mentioned earlier about how this is kind of like a fantasy you know said it a couple of times it's a fantastical version of this time period so it's kind of ironic then that we are seeing a, a, a sort of a trend towards the more real interactions in these with these characters and yet we're also seeing a more idealized version of the time period like you'd expect it to go the other way you'd expect the realistic vision of that time period with maybe darker gloomier lighting um i mean let's face it this is london and britain where it's probably raining more often than not i'm not sure it rains it rains once in this tv show um, and it's a very cinematic moment. Exactly. Really. So, you know, we're, we're moving away from reality in that aspect in order to portray it in a very particular visual style, but we're moving closer to reality in terms of the family dynamic for the Bridgertons in particular. But they're the eponymous family, so maybe, you know, we're only seeing them this way because we're just trying to connect with them a little bit more and that kind of a thing. But it's definitely it's definitely an interesting aspect here. But let's move on to the next little section here so violet um lady bridgerton has an argument with anthony about his control over the family and in particular daphne um she knows about his wayward ways and his um lady across town shall we say she tells him are you merely an older brother or are you the man of this house and that forces him to make a decision um, about this um, woman he has across town. So, um, I mean, this is a particularly interesting point, right? Because we, you mentioned this when we were watching it, but the that mother-son aspect, you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, so when I was watching it, I got really frustrated because, you know, I'm not a mother, but I just find kind of this this uh, dynamic in a time period like this. And in some cultures, we, we still see it today where, you know, once a father dies the son is the head of the household in a lot of ways and so um he's trying to step up and kind of fill the the role that his father had but in a society like this in some ways it's almost to to control the women and in particular what i find is weird is that it's it's controlling his mother and so i find that dynamic so weird where he's kind of saying this is what's going to happen mother and this is this is what we're doing with daphne and that sort of thing because you know she she birthed him this this man that i'm sure in her mind 
you know, running around London. It's her child that she birthed from her own body. And then here he is saying, this is what we're going to do. And I've already scheduled your social season um, and you're not going to this party, but you are going to this one and that sort of thing. So I'm so glad even in the first episode, she has this chat with him where she's kind of like, look, look, boy, I know where you've been. I know what you've been doing. And if you think you're some grown up, I'm your mother and you're not doing the things that you should be doing. If you want to act like the man of this house, then step up and do it. But yeah. currently that's not what you're doing. And I think it's just really interesting, this kind of dynamic where, where these, these men, uh, particularly somebody like Anthony, who's, he's still young, you know, he's, it's not like he's in his forties with his own family. There's so many things that he needs to learn and experiences he needs to have. And yet he's kind of bossing around his, his mother. And, you know, if I was her, I, I would be so frustrated because I would be like, I'm, I am your mother. Like I, I gave birth to you. So I think there's a couple of things that we, we can unpack here, but let's not talk about it for too long. Let's just briefly talk about it because for a modern, um, lens, like, yes, 100%, that is weird. Um, but you know, for the time period, maybe it wouldn't have been weird so much as yet annoying, frustrating, but not like, oh, weird, my son's telling me what to do because it was accepted and it was the norm. So I'm sure that it would have been frustrating. I'm sure that the re the response of this character is accurate in the sense of like, listen, boy, don't, you know, don't come in here thinking you know more than me. But at the same time, as as a woman of that society, she would have known that, well, hey, he has to make the decisions, particularly in public. But you know, to get him to realize that he should come to her for advice because she's been running this family since he was born too, right? So, you know, to come for advice and to speak and like actually, you know, use the, the knowledge that she has. I'm, like, I'm, I'm certain that happened all the time. Um, but I'm not sure if, if it would have been weird. But, but yeah, anyway, definitely a an, an, uh, pertinent point. And it's something that comes up quite a few times, really, doesn't it? So soon after this, we have another ball. We see Penelope Featherington run into one of the younger Bridgerton sons, Colin. It's obvious that she likes him and is nervous around him. And a very unkind young lady throws her drink at Penelope. She's seen as insignificant. Obviously, Penelope is mortified, uh, but Colin saves her by escorting her to the dance floor. So first off, I just want to say... There are so many balls in this, and this is only the first episode. Um, and I just find that so interesting, especially having grown up with watching so much Jane Austen. You know, the amount of balls that are in this, I appreciate it. But the, the drama and the dancing and everything, I mean, it is on overload. I feel like I have taken Regency drugs and it is like the intensity on balls. It's like times two. Oh my god! I just realized what I. Said. I didn't mean it like uh, is, that. I just. I mean, went, is there I just, is there a chance we can call them dances instead? Fine. The or events. The amount of dances in this, I love it, and I I love seeing people dance, and I can't believe I did that, but I love seeing people dance and I love uh, the music that they put in this and everything but there are so 
many and it does feel like that the the drama that is you know done in one austin mini series or whatever it's all in this one episode yeah so it does feel like a lot um but i think one of the the really interesting things about that though um because i know that we mentioned this a few times as we were watching the show that drama and that level of like conflict and and heightened tension stays throughout the entire season it's not just like a one-off they're they're not front-loading it because they're poor writers they're they're just that's how that that's how the show is i definitely think that's a shonda rhimes thing um you know Grey's anatomy the reason why i think it's been successful and it has what 18 seasons i think i mean it's been going for a long time and it's it's always is it still going oh yes wow so you know i think i think it's something that um shondaland is really good at is is handling this level of of drama and keeping our attention episode by episode. So that's very much a signature thing, I think, for her. And um, to be able to take a Regency set of novels like this and then make it this dramatic on screen to where a wide array of audiences, you know, people like you and I, like we have different interests um, when it comes to kind of what we watch and what we read to grab both of our interests. I th- I think you've got to be talented. Oh, 100%. In your producing and in your writing and they've definitely done that here. Oh yeah, hats off. I think they've they've done a fantastic job. Um yeah. So uh, after this point, we notice that Anthony has taken his conversation with his mother um completely the wrong way. Um or in the right way in a sense, but it comes out wrong. He tells Daphne that she is to marry the gross Mr. Burbrook um, simply because there is nothing wrong with him, quote unquote. He tells her that it should be easy for her to fall in in love with him as it would be with anyone. So, you know, this this kind of idea of the love match um, and matching well within society and as we mentioned earlier, kind of marrying into a family that's kind of up the social ladder instead of down. Um, you know, you've mentioned here in the notes, it's more about connections than love. Um, you, how how do you kind of does that you know marry with the rest of the genre? Is it different? Like, what's your opinion there? I mean, I I definitely think for most of Regency novels, it is about creating a love match. I will say with uh, Sense and Sensibility that um, you know at the end of it, Marianne she gets with Colonel Brandon and I don't think that she ever says that she loves him but she knows he's a good man and that he's going to take care of her type thing and so it's it's not necessarily seen as a negative that she's not madly in love with him like she was with Mr. Willoughby but I think it's um one of those things where he'll offer her security um she has come to respect him to a great degree and so there is there is kind of um a level of of no nonsense in that but also kind of a level of warmth in um in it not being a, like a full-on love match but it's still being one that that's matched well and so i think with with something like that you know i i think they treat this love match as this rare thing of like oh to to both have um good a good connection and a love match like you know it's this almost magical thing because the norm is that you you choose someone that matches with your status 
And if you happen to have a love match, awesome. Or if you happen to fall in love after you've married, which apparently was the case for some people, then great on you and you've won the lottery type thing. But it's not something that's like top tier of things that you should be looking for. Like it, it's not the end all and be all if you are a love match. And this is a theme throughout the entire show. This does come up up again in, in um, later episodes. And so we'll mention it then um, as well. But this kind of medieval concept of this, like, you know, you will marry this person because I told you so. It is one that's persisted for many centuries. And it's, it's this political marriage concept. Because, you know, this, I think, because it's a romance TV show, and they're they're making it all about the marriage and things. You, it's obviously it's got to be a thing that we talk about and we explore, but it's best epitomised by the Bridgertons and the Featheringtons themselves. We'll talk more about that as the season goes on, I think. But it's needless to say the Bridgerton family talks about their parents' love match quite a few times, and then the Featherington um, marriage of connection. Is, is mentioned a few times by characters too. But I think it's definitely interesting. It's almost like there was a checklist for somebody like Mr. Bearbrook. Like, you know, I, I remember Anthony even saying, oh, well, he's a good shot. You know, he's, he's not a womanizer. He um, deals well with, with his money. He's got the title that you need. Oh, and he's a good shot. And it's this checklist of things. And, you know, he could be 40 years older than you, but as long as he's on the checklist, we're good. But, I mean, arguably, the reason he did that is because his mother said to him, are you her older brother or are you the head of the household? So he took that to mean, well, okay, I was being an older brother. I was doing that stereotypical, you're not good enough for my sister, you're not good enough for my sister, because he'd always find an excuse. And now he's gone, well, he's ugly and he's a bit of a a simpleton, but he does have these things and so really there's nothing like actually wrong and when he said that like he meant in terms of society in the eyes of society there's nothing wrong with that man therefore you should marry him so i definitely think he did like a crazy 180 though he just was like right i'm gonna get it done yeah i mean he must have been feeling the pressure though like by this point i mean um i'm not entirely sure how long uh, their father has has been dead by the I'm start of the sure. series. But you know, he's he's feeling he's feeling the pressure. So um we move on to Portia Featherington um, walking down the hall of her house in the frilliest um over the top nightgown that she, I she loved wears. It. She had frills coming out of every single Wait, was that the one where they had kind of like feathers and Yes, it was just like this feathery like nightgown. I mm. mean just so over the top. Um, and of course that's the way I walk around our flat, um, is in one of those. And that's the way I open the door to the postman and my, my frills are just everywhere, um, all around the house. So I know you love it. To be fair, I think the only person who saw like that other than Marina was her lady's maid, handmaid. So, so yeah. Um, so Portia, um, goes to Marina's bedroom um, their new guest and accuses her of being pregnant because she hasn't yet had her courses as they call them in the show but she hasn't um, had her period so um, Portia slaps um, Marina because Marina calls out the family's privilege 
Um, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but we'll talk more about this in another episode. So Daphne is approached in the garden at the ball um, by Mr. Burbrook. We knew he was bad. Just had a feeling. Yeah. So he's he's already planning their life together as man and wife because um, her brother has accepted his proposal on Daphne's behalf. Um, but when Daphne tells Mr. Burbrook in no uncertain terms that she will never marry him, he grabs her and he assaults her um, and basically says, you're as good as mine. The deal is a done deal. You know, I can I'm, do what I'm, I want with yeah, you. Yeah, I can do what I want. I'm having you. And, you know, in the background, we see that the Duke is kind of coming up upon this um, and he starts to run up. But before the Duke gets there, Daphne punches Mr. Bearbrook in the face. Now, I want to comment that not only does she punch him, she knocks him flat on his ass with a black eye to boot. <laughs> like, it, it was great. She didn't even break a hand. Um, it, it was it was fantastic. I, yeah, I really appreciated this because I'll be honest, when I was watching this and I saw that he, you know, was assaulting her, essentially, I was like, oh, no, like, this is definitely going to be this moment where the Duke comes up and you start to see him come up and I, I'm like, oh, it's going to be this damsel in distress moment, but it's not. She literally just lobs this guy and then the Duke kind of comes up and is like, whoa. <laughs> and I think there's like a little bit of like respect. Yeah, there is. There is respect. And do you know why? And we'll see this many times throughout the show, but the Duke is a boxer. So he goes, that that was a good punch. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really like the subverting of the trope there. I think it's just one of the other things that, um, you know, they've done when producing this show that really brings it up into the modern era, um, that kind of thing as well. But then so quickly I get so annoyed because... She doesn't even have time to, like, breathe from punching this guy or even, like, you know, pat herself on the back a little bit for, for like, getting this guy away and saying what she needed to say, say, standing up for herself, because she's like, oh, I'm looking around and now I'm alone with two guys. And, you know, the pressure's on for me to, like, panic because I could be seen with two men in the garden and I can't have a moment's peace by myself without these men coming up to me. So that's annoying to me because I'm like, all of a sudden she has to remember this is on me yet again. Here I am, you know, in this garden alone and the pressure is on me to not be seen badly in in society for being alone with people. You and, know, it wouldn't affect them, but... Right, exactly. And so I was going to say, and in an unironic way, it's literally the patriarchy and I know that that's kind of <laughs> become a term that people use um, too much, but it is literally in this society at this time, a patriarchy where the men rule, and so they will not get the blame. It is her fault. She is the one who has tempted them or whatever it is, whatever stupid excuse they'll come up with, um, and she's the one that will that stands to lose because they won't because they don't rely on only their uh, virtue, do they? And yeah, well, in, in stuff like this, and I think Bridgerton does a really good job of going beyond just that first step. I think when you see shows like these and women talk about their virtue and stuff, they it's almost as if you think, oh, well, all they care about is how they're being seen. If I'm caught in a garden with a 
with a guy like, how am I going to be seen by society? It's not just about that. It's the fact that how am I going to be seen in society and will that ruin my life? Will that ruin me having a secure future for someone to take care of me, for me to have a roof over my head? It's so much more connected than just how will society see me if I didn't have the right colored dress on or if I didn't speak to so-and-so or if I was seen in the back hall of a, you know, a building with a man. It's so much more than that. It's how is that going to affect my security in the future? And so when you think of it that way and not just as kind of this frivolous thing of like, oh, how am I going to be seen? Like you realize it's all tied up in their future and all tied up in, in, in the safety of their lives. So, I, you know, I think it's kind of a interesting aspect to just keep in mind throughout the series. So, um, getting to the last 10 minutes of this episode, uh, the Duke offers a solution to Daphne while, is it Mr. Bearbrook? Yeah, while Mr. Bearbrook is flat on his face, uh, the Duke suggests to Daphne that they kind of strike a deal between the two of them. So, she's got no suitors at the minute. He's got way too many people wanting him to be a suitor to their daughters. Um, and so he's like, hey, look, let's kind of court one one another and people will leave us alone. You know, these mothers that keep coming up and, and trying to get me to talk to their daughters, they'll leave me alone. Society's going to see you as this very eligible bachelorette um, because you are on my arm. He says, let's strike a deal. And I think had she have not gone through what she'd gone through in this episode, maybe she wouldn't have agreed. But it's come at just the right moment to where she doesn't want to have to be engaged uh, to Mr. Bearbrook that she agrees. And I think it's such a, a cool moment that they walk out of the garden as fireworks light up the sky, come back into the, into the dance, the two of them walking hand in hand, showing all the people around them uh, that they have formed an attachment. And at the end, Lady Whistledown declares the news through her paper, yet again, that's being distributed throughout London, and she shows them that she is still in control of the narrative. So my overall thoughts about the first episode of this series, I, I think first of all, the fact that this was made at all is really impressive. As someone that's been reading Regency novels since I was really young um, and wanting to write Regency novels myself, it always felt like that there, you know, that there was kind of a stigma around these novels, you know, that they're overlooked in terms of being, you know, shopped for, for film or television because they're written by women. They can sometimes be a bit cheesy. You know, they can be, quote, girly which whatever that means and so they're not taken as seriously as other as other novels are and so really the only regency examples that we've had for a while has been austin who's brilliant and and i love her above all else but you know there there have been other people that have written uh regency era novels and a lot of them have been a bit saucy and so i, I think they've been overlooked all this all this time as kind of the, these fluff pieces for women, chiclet fluff for women to consume and that there's nothing serious to be gained from them and that, you know, what would be the point of putting them on the, the big screen 
you know, most of the time when we've seen stuff in similar time periods, it's it's been shows like Harlots, which uh, came out recently. That's a very, it's a very visually beautiful show. You know, there is a lot of color and vibrance um, in a show like that, but it's gritty. It's it's dark and it's gritty. Um, and the same way with, with The Tudors as well, which is a bit older, but, you know, The Tudors as well, it's, very extravagant. It is very colorful as as well, but it's very gritty. It's very dark. And so, you know, you're not guaranteed a happy ending at the end, of course. And so it's, this is one of those shows where it's saying, we can do it all. We can show you the sex. You want to see the sex. We can show you the cheese. We can show you the the costumes, all of it. And we can give you a happy ending. Not Oh my gosh. No, but we can give you uh, an ending that is happy at the finale of the show. And I think that is so cool. And for somebody like me, I'm a Hallmark channel watcher. You know, I do like a bit of cheese in my romance. And it's 2020. The world is falling apart. Give me something like Bridgerton to occupy my mind and, and make me happy. I am all down for the show. What what is 100% guaranteed in the show, however, is that it is not Austin at all. And as much as, like I said, I love Austin, I am I am down for a little bit of steaminess. Especially, we're in lockdown. Let's go for it. So yeah, that's my final uh, thoughts on this episode. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like you said, we're coming to the end of 2020. This was released on uh, Christmas Day. We're, we're moving into a new year. I'm sure a lot of people are hoping for an entirely different year than the one that we've just had. Um, I think this kind of vibrant, upbeat kind of storytelling is exactly what people need um, at a time like this. Um, I thought it was a great first episode. Uh, they did a fantastic job not only breaking down the stereotypes of the genre and the time period, particularly with the diversity in the cast, but they've subverted the tropes and they've made it a much more enjoyable watch than you'd first expect, particularly from like an outsider's point of view, right? Um, and then we went right on to watch three more episodes the first time that we watched the series, despite the fact that it was, you know, 1am when we watched the first by the end of the first episode we we watched up until 4am oh it was so addicting it yeah. is so addicting so i'm i'm pretty sure that anybody listening um pretty much did the same thing um as as us and, and binged or half binged uh, the series but yeah i think uh, as an intro to to a series like this it was really a really good one um it really grabbed you um you know and and it just there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery that you kind of want answers to, and that's that's great storytelling. Open with a mystery, um, and solve it, and promise to solve it by the end. And you know, you should listen on to to find out what kinds of uh, promises were answered. And, and the sex. All right. Okay. Fine. Like <laughs> we barely sex. talked about that because we haven't seen it yet, but yeah. Watch on and listen on, not for sex here, but you know. Oh, wait, just well, stop talking. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of the podcast. Stay tuned for more. We'll be covering each episode in detail, just as we did for episode one. Keep updated with the podcast on Facebook or Instagram at a Regency Girl, or join our group at facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors. And don't forget, that's rumors with a U, because that's how it's spelled. Oh, for heaven's sake.